You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. Today I have our friend, Mob Museum blogger Larry Henry. And Larry also is a regular blogger for the casino industry at www.casino.org. You might want to check Dustin's website, www.dustinmarks.com. You can find his book there, Cheating at Blackjack. You may learn something. Maybe you can go out and win a whole bunch of money at Blackjack instead of losing it like I do. Welcome, Dustin. Welcome. Thanks. Larry, good to have you here. Great to be here, Gary. Thanks. Hi, Dustin. Looking forward to it. So am I. This will be fun. All right. So, Dustin, you're a crossroader. I I learned that term on your website that a gaming cheat in the casino industry is called a crossroader. Now, are you a crossroader or are you a magician? You started out as a magician. I'm both, but I'm a retired crossroader. <laughs> I still do the magic, but a crossroader is a person who specializes in cheating the legal casinos. And I was mainly doing the crossroading in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, and, and Nevada, but mainly Vegas. And this was back in the uh, mid-80s. So, Dustin, you got your start as a magician. Tell me a little bit about how you got your start as a magician. I mean, did it just come to you naturally? And did you just gravitate no, to card tricks? Or Actually, uh, my father took me to see an amateur magician, a friend of the family. I was just seven years old. And, you know, he's older. He's probably in his 60s. And, you know, didn't move very well. But the minute he got those cards in his hand, he became young again. And it just looked like magic to me. And I was hooked right then and there. So did you start like playing with decks of cards and, you know, learn how to shuffle them real fancy and, and manipulate them and hold them? And, and Oh, yeah. But back then there was no YouTube or even videos. You had <laughs> yeah. to get, uh, go to the library and get magic books, uh. which I did and try to figure out how to do the card tricks and manipulations. Amaze all your friends with your card tricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I was, I was very young, so that's yeah. my audience besides my parents. <laughs> yeah, really. Did you continue on, you know, as, as a young man? Did you try to earn a living as a magician? And or just uh, actually, always a hobby? It was more of a hobby, and then I went to college, and I, uh, <laughs> funny story, I pledged to the fraternity. So I had all the active members think I could read their minds so they wouldn't mess with me as much. I do little shows and stuff. And uh, I got really, really interested in magic. And I started buying books. Now, you know, I'm older, I'm 18, 19, 20. And I started realizing all the best card men, because I was mainly into card magic, lived in Las Vegas, Nevada. And these were just magicians like Jimmy Grippo, Michael Skinner, Paul Harris, Daryl, the list goes on and on. So that's what really made me move to Las Vegas, Nevada back in 1983. Hmm. Well, to learn more about magic, and, and I guess there's a lot of work for magic acts, I would imagine, out there, and interesting. Uh, so how did you, once you got out there, did you immediately think, well, these card tricks, uh, if I can manipulate these cards, could I then go in and earn a little extra money at the casinos by manipulating cards? Not immediately. There was, or still going, is called Gary Darwin's Magic Club. I think they started in the 70s. So I found out about it in 83 and took me, you know, there's no internet. It took me about a couple months to try to track down where in the hell they met. I finally found where they met and they met at that time, Wednesday night, starting at 9 p.m. So I remember walking in there the first night 
And there I see Alan Ackerman, I see Paul Harris, I see Jimmy Grippo. And these are all names I was familiar with because I had their books back in the Midwest where I'm from. And they were very friendly. They welcomed me and showed me stuff. So in about nine months, I went from like 10% to 90% because I'm studying with the best in the world. Wow. Really exciting for somebody who never met you know, anybody in the magic field, per se. Well, what would be an example of something that they had taught you that was like, to me, would look like magic? What would be an example of a Oh, just uh, a lot of it was the principles more than the actual moves. You know, how not to look guilty when you're doing a move, how to be natural, how to use misdirection. You can't catch anything if your attention is over here and I'm doing something over there. That's yeah. the whole concept, not just for magic, but for, you know, cheating at the uh, game of blackjack or any game. So is manage somebody's attention. Interesting. Really, really interesting. And then, of course, they showed me moves that weren't even in books yet, you know, stuff they were working on. So it was really a fantastic education. I've always wondered, is there a certain kind of like dexterity? It's like I I watched some of your things you were doing with chips and on your YouTube and you must be having an immense natural gift of dexterity with your hands. Did you always have that or? I think so. You know, and you practice and yeah, I didn't have any kind of problem then or even now as far as like arthritis or anything. Yeah. My hands have been very limber, but it's also just practice. There were probably almost a thousand hours. I bought one of the first actual camcorders back in the eighties and had a blackjack table where I lived, and I'd film myself doing the move over and over and over again. And when I couldn't tell when I was doing the move versus when I wasn't doing the move, I knew there's no way on the sky I could nail it. Wow. And that was like having a palm in a card, having a, another card that you wanted to swap out. That was kind of one of the main ones that looked to me like and be the easiest, simplest one to improve your hand. You got it like a 16, and you want to get that four or five out of there and slip a a jack or something in there. Why? Uh, yeah, it changes uh, the odds just a bit. <laughs> so what was your thought process when you decided you would take this um, ability to manipulate cards that you'd used to entertain people with into a casino and, and just see how that would work? What was your, um, kind of lead me down that path, your process of getting there? Because it could have been just an overnight deal. Right. Well, I would practice, but it all started with the question is who was absolutely the best with a deck of cards? I had met Alan, I met Michael Skinner, who was actually Johnny Carson's favorite magician, was on The Tonight Show a lot, Paul Harris, etc. I kept asking who's the best, and one name came up that I'd never heard of. And I don't know why, but I just thought this is the guy, and I'm going to call him Crunch because I I still don't want to use his name, his real name. And there was a bookstore in Las Vegas called Gambler's Bookstore. Back then it was on 11th Street off of Charleston. And a buddy of mine who I met worked there. And we thought we knew what this guy looked like, Crunch. So I said, if he ever comes in the bookstore, which I heard he came in a lot, you call me and I'll drive up because that's only about 15 minutes away. So one day I got the phone call and my buddy, whose name was Paul, said, yeah, I think he's in here. So I drove up to the bookstore, walked in, and I saw Crunch. I said, yeah, in my mind, I said, yeah, that looks like him. I walked up to him. I said, are you Crunch? I'll never forget what he said. He goes, 
Depends on who's asking. <laughs> so it was him. And we talked for only about five minutes. And they asked me kind of a strange question. He goes, uh, do you have a car? I go, well, of course I have a car. He goes, follow me home. So I followed him home. Eight hours later, I left. He showed me so much stuff. I didn't even know my name. And it was a brilliant strategy because he showed me so many things. I couldn't remember a thing. But he showed me switching the cards. He was showing me chip moves. He's showing me stacking the deck. He showed me dice stuff. And this guy I knew right then and there was the best in the world. No doubt about it. And he was. And we became friends, partners. And that's what really changed everything in my life. Because when I saw how deceptive and how good someone could get, I knew there was virtually no way of getting caught unless somebody rolled on you. Mm-hmm. Well, now, did you guys work together the first time you went into a casino? That had to be, as we uh, affectionately say, we pop in your cherry. Did uh, What was that like that first time? Well, actually went? not with him initially. He had a lot of heat already. They initially, got a job in a little break-in house, and I'd go through the motions but not actually do anything. So I knew, well, kind of like a practice run type of thing. And then I moved up to a bigger and better casino. And then I did start moving, you know, doing the moves. And it went well. And then I got a call from him maybe three, four months later. I can't remember. And they're doing a big play out of town. I'm still in Nevada somewhere. And that's what really changed everything because this was a major ordeal. We had about, trying to think, about 15 people involved. And I was one of the dealers. Wow. We took out a lot of money. <laughs> it had to be quite a thrill once you got through that that night that had to be a huge I know this was an ongoing thing we were about six weeks six weeks wow yeah five dealers I think six players couple bosses and I never f- will forget walking onto the casino floor and looking going that's one of our guys that's one of our guys that's yeah. one of our guys you know and of course nobody else knew it yeah, and Crunch was involved in that play. What happened, and it's just pure luck, like a lot of things, the casino where we were at would randomly polygraph the dealers. So for whatever reason, I never got polygraphed. All the other dealers couldn't pass the polygraph. They didn't get arrested or anything, a pop. They just got fired. So it was just me, Crunch, and one boss after a while. And we yeah. just ripped and tore that place. So that's working. I think I read on your website, that's working the inside. What they call Yeah, I was a dealer and Crunch was a player. So you got a, a dealer involved. Did you guys go out and try to recruit other dealers or how did that work? How did you find other dealers that might be susceptible? Well, in that particular play, he already, he knew everybody. So there are four other dealers. One guy for sure I knew previous. I don't believe I knew any of the other dealers. In fact, at this point, I don't even remember who they were. But once I progressed from that, I did recruit some of my own people to do basically the same thing, but in casinos back here in Vegas. Hmm. So then you work what they call the outside once in a while, which would be infinitely more dangerous, I would think, but more thrilling too, which working the outside, if I remember right, you just go in on your own. You don't know the dealer and you have to cheat that dealer. Exactly. You know, if you're working the inside with the dealer, the dealer's your partner. When you're working the outside, the dealer's the number one enemy because yeah. he's the one right in front of you. So, yeah, you're right. It is uh, more dangerous. Yeah, pick your dealer. You either pick a beginner who's so damn scared he can barely deal with cards, or you pick somebody who's been dealing so long they're on autopilot. They're not paying attention unless yeah. you draw attention to yourself. 
So how do you case out a casino? Give me kind of step by step. You got to have a plan to case out a casino. You may go to maybe even go to two or three. So how would you do that? What would you look for? We look for, uh, first of all, we knew the casinos that were sharp, had sharp people and the casinos that didn't. I mean, we had people on the inside just feeding us information. They weren't part of the play. We'd say, hey, stay away from XYZ because there's some pretty sharp guys on the floor. This casino here is a candy store. Yeah, they don't have anybody who knows what's going on. So that would be number one. Number two, you'd look at the dealer. I could tell within 60 seconds of the dealer's a break-in, didn't know what he was doing versus somebody who's kind of paying attention versus somebody who's been dealing so long they're bored to death and aren't going to pay attention unless you draw attention to yourself. So it was kind of easy. Then you looked at the game. Some games weren't beatable. Some were. So you pick ones that were beatable. Just a lot of different factors like that. So not all the games were beatable, even with the moves we were doing, because some moves weren't applicable, depending on the rules in the game. So what would be an example of a game that wasn't beatable and an example of a game that was? I... Well, back then, the games dealt out of the shoe weren't beatable for stuff we were doing overall. I'm not saying they weren't beatable, but not for the techniques we were using, where you know handheld, which was predominantly dealt back then, was more beatable. And there was stuff we would do that wasn't technically legal. There's two things back then in the 80s you could do and would be classified under advantage play. And one was whole card and one was, well, both are whole card. There was two part, uh, two types of whole card. One was back then the dealer would check if he had a 10 up to see if he had a blackjack. And some dealers wouldn't check correctly and you could see that underneath card. So that would give you a slight advantage, maybe a percent and a half. The other thing was a front loader as they would, the dealer I'm talking about, load their down card under their up card. They would flash it accidentally. They couldn't tell they were flashing it because they couldn't see themselves do it. That would give you about a 7% advantage, which is decent. I mean, not compared to what we did when we were cheating, but still decent. So we had a list of dealers that would do that. And we would play them regularly, find out you know, their days off, the time they were there play them. And again, that's not technically illegal. In fact, a friend of mine went to the Nevada Supreme Court when he was caught and the judge ruled that it was casino's responsibility to teach the dealers how to deal the game properly. If they didn't, the customer could take advantage of it. Makes sense. I'll be darned. You probably didn't have the mind for it. You didn't cart. Were you able to count cards? Yeah, I did that too. Oh, really? My so-called career was backwards, which was actually really good. Because when I was cheating, nobody knew who I was. Then when I got a little heat, I quit the cheating and just were a part of card counting teams, which were completely legal. And we played here in uh, Nevada. We played in uh, Mississippi. I think those are the only two places. But that was, you know, like not a big deal as far as worried about getting caught because all they would do is kick you out of the casino. No big deal. Now, card counting doesn't have near the advantage cheating does but yeah. it's totally legal and we went down to mississippi when they first opened up and talk about a candy store those poor dealers had no clue how to deal so we take advantage of that too huh. now think back to the movie casino supposedly when they caught a guy cheating and they take him in the back in the back room and whack his hand with a hammer or something and and you hear those stories out how much truth there or how much fiction was there to that Oh, it probably happened once or twice, but in the movie, and of course it's a movie, 
I mean, that's way overkill. They don't need electronics to signal the card. All they do is, you know, simple. This is low, yeah. this is high. And it could be much more subtle than that. Yeah. But I'm talking about when you get caught. Do they ever whack you around when you get caught? Well, I was never caught. And I never heard of anybody that really got beat up. Okay. I'm not saying it didn't. But it wasn't as common as the movie the Casino made it. Okay. The one place I would never do anything, and most people weren't if they were smart, was the old Binion's Horseshoe. Because there they might take you down the back room and you might not be in one piece when you got left. Interesting. What about Atlantic City? Was that, did you work Atlantic City much at all? Never did. I just wondered if it was any different back there. Yeah, I don't know about Atlantic City. Now, one thing I noticed that you did, and I told you I had a little experience with this when I was a uh, gaming commission judge, if you will, and they caught a dealer from another casino coming to Sister Casino, and he would, if he had a good hand, he'd try to slip another chip up there. I can't remember what they call that. You showed how to do that both ways, take a chip out and put another chip in. What do you call that, and and how does that work? Uh, It's called pressing the bet, which is meaning adding to the bet. So let's say I have a 20. And the dealer has a six up. Now, probably he's got a 16. There's a good chance he's going to bust. You're going to win the hand. So what you do is add a chip to the bottom of the stack so it's not as apparent. So what you're doing is as you tuck the cards, you got a chip underneath the cards. And then you're sliding the cards in between the existing chip and the chip under the cards. So it lines up pretty much. And then you can pull it out slightly and tuck it under. And when you do that move, you want to do it against a taller dealer. So he has a harder time or she has a harder time of seeing how many chips were actually there. And again, a dealer on autopilot, they're not going to remember that, you know, Bob has four chips, Sam has six chips, Laura, you know, they're just not going to do it. So if, uh, if you do the move well, it's pretty tough to get caught. It's more of a move, though, for the TV and video than do under fire. I did it some, but it's you can't make that much money because you can't, let's say you're betting nickels, which is $5. You can't put a $1,000 chip under there. That would definitely draw attention. So you put a $25 chip. So you're only winning an extra $25, which in the long run is kind of a high-risk move, even though it's pretty deceptive. There's things yeah. that are much stronger to do. Yeah, I see what you mean. It is pretty high risk for the uh, risk and return, and return's not that much, that moving those chips in. That's pretty slick the way you'd like take your cards and knock that one out. Off the bottom. And oh, back. yeah. Yeah, that's strictly for video. You know, oh, okay. You those. It looked good. but I couldn't see it. Move under fire. You yeah. Know? yeah, when you're doing TV and video, you want something that looks interesting. Yeah. Because some of the moves are just so good, you wouldn't see anything. It's not as interesting to the Yeah, game. I see what you mean. But the pit bosses, did they move from table to table, so they're kind of responsible for overall for that kind of thing. and. How dangerous were they for you? Were they any threat at all? Not really. Back then, a boss generally had six games to watch. So at some point, his back was towards us. Yeah. About 50% of the time. So obviously, he can't see if he's not looking. So we would watch where the bosses were looking. And then we could just play on the square if he's really burning us, meaning watching closely. So he watches for a minute or two, doesn't see anything and goes to the next game, watches that. So it's really hard for a boss to really watch unless he's tipped off. Uh, Either uh, he spots somebody or something, 
or uh, you're acting suspicious. And I just, that's one thing I never really got nervous. So I never gave the bosses a reason to watch me when I was playing or dealing. Yeah. It seems to me like the key is to not draw any attention to yourself, to just blend into the background. Because I know like the guys that watch on the cameras up there, those cameras are not that high resolution many times in their and they've got several of them to watch, but they pick a guy that or a gal that draws their attention. And for some reason, and sometimes you don't even know what it is that draws your attention, but something that draws your attention, then you start focusing on that person. And, and that, otherwise, I don't think that eye in the sky is really, that's more of kind of a deal to keep there. And when they get sued or something, <laughs> why they've got a recording of everything. Or they catch their dealers cheating and stealing money. I think that's what that's more for. Were you afraid of that at all? In the 80s, the cameras were terrible. A lot of them were black and white. Yeah. They were predominantly on wide angle, watching three games at a time. So unless you know they were told to zoom in, they weren't going to be a factor. And some of the moves, even with the camera zoomed in, were just invisible. Yeah. Couldn't catch them. Now, what you're talking about, attention, we would use that principle, though. Let's say we're on game two, just to give it a number. Going to do a move. Then we'd have somebody buy in for $10,000 on game five. Well, where's all the attention going to go to game five? Yeah. So everybody's looking at that, the eye in the sky, the bosses. So we do the sneaky move on game two for five seconds, whatever it takes. Nobody's watching. Wow. That's uh, it's amazing. I suppose there's people still doing things like this, too. I suppose there's still teams out there. Somewhat, but now they're more into electronics. Oh, the yeah. actual manipulation of the cards, which is good and bad. The bad thing is anybody can learn electronics or buy them, but they don't understand the casinos and they stick out like a sore thumb. They just, you can tell, why is this guy, you can tell he's never been in casinos, betting all this money and something just doesn't seem right. Yeah. You might not know the bosses of this guy, might not know what, but they say, nah, something's wrong here. Where guys like me, you know, we were from the casino, so we knew how to fit in. And we put in hundreds, if not thousands, hours of practice before we actually did anything. Electronics, you know, you can learn electronics quickly and go in the casino. But and I've seen some surveillance. I said, yeah, something's going on here. These people, yeah. you can tell, they're, they're not on the square. What do you mean by electronics? Oh, they got, uh, you know, cameras up the sleeve, catching the whole card. They got cameras that record the shuffle, just all kind of stuff. And I, I'm not versed on that. Okay. Well, it could be, you name it, yeah. they could uh, have it. And when you can take off a million, two million a session, what's $50,000 investment? <laughs> That's, true. That's true. The other bad thing about electronics, so if you're caught, you can't say, I don't know how this got on my body. I mean, you're nailed. So that's another bad thing about electronics overall. Yeah, that's interesting. You always have that deniability. What do you mean I was cheating? Uh, Yeah, exactly. If you're doing pure sliding. How did I, what do you mean? How did I do that? Maybe I accidentally drug a card back. I don't, maybe it looked like that. I don't know. (laughs) Interesting. Did you ever wear disguises after you kind of? Like people maybe got a little worried that somebody might be on to you a little bit. And so you start dressing differently. I know in that there's a movie about the card counters that they start trying to dress differently and, and do different things. Yeah, I did for the big plays because I looked really young. I was really young. I was in my 20s. 
So yeah, I had the wigs, I had the glasses. We had a guy make us fake teeth, which really changes the shape of your face and different things. So I probably looked in my late 40s and I was only in my mm -hmm. mid-20s. Disguises I thought were pretty good. So I, I looked completely different. Didn't wear much, but when I did, I felt pretty confident that uh -huh. nobody would recognize me. Yeah, you'd have to feel confident with the disguise. Otherwise, if you'd look uncomfortable, they'd be all over you, wouldn't they? Well, a funny story is I had the disguise and everything. My parents were coming in. I was supposed to, back then, you could pick people off the airport, go into the, where the plane uh, landed and stuff. So I went into a little waiting room. They walked right past me, didn't at <laughs> all. So once that happened, I thought, yes, this guy's is pretty damn good. <laughs> Larry, you got any questions? Yeah. Hey, hey, Dust, this is fascinating. And thanks for taking the time to do sure. this. When you guys were in the 80s, I'm assuming this was a full-time job. How much money were you all making doing this on a weekly basis? It would vary. Yeah, I always wanted to fly under the radar. Now, we could have took out 5,000 per session easily. We had the moves down, but two things would happen. One, there'd be a lot of tension on me if I was dealing, and two, they would back off my agent, my partner, and then I have to get another partner, another, and another, and I knew that's not going to work because eventually I'll get the wrong partner. So what we would do for the smaller plays is not win that much, but have, have them come in fairly regularly. So we'd still win a lot in the long run, but there wasn't much attention. Now that we did some really big plays where you win for $100,000 in a night in the casinos, which was a lot of money back then, but we didn't do them that often because that always brought a lot of attention. So to answer your question, it would just depend. Some weeks, a normal week, well, we take out maybe two, three thousand the most. On the big plays, you know, it'd be six figures. What, but I always uh, thought longevity was the key. When you talk about casinos in the 80s in Las Vegas, many of them aren't around anymore. Exactly. They've been demolished. What are some of the casinos you worked in, and what are some of the ones that you guys had the most success in? Oh, let me think. I'll just kind of combine your answer. I'll tell you one. Riviera was the mecca of pull card play. The dealer's not being taught properly. There are like three, four, five dealers in there flashing the cards accidentally. That was one. Of course, that's legal. Trap, let's see. Trap was a place. Hilton, Sundance, Castaways, Power Station. Those are some. There's others. Actually, I kind of forgotten a lot of them aren't around, like you said, anymore. Yeah, we hit a lot of the casinos, sometimes just one or two plays, and that was it. Others we would be in fairly frequently, but we tried to change it up so the bosses didn't see us that much. Come in on swing, then on grade, then on days. So the boss might see us once in a couple of weeks. And you're not going to remember. Because they see hundred in a couple of weeks, they might see a thousand different players. Unless you give them a reason to remember you, they're not going to remember you. How big of a team are you talking about on some of these plays, Dustin? You know, when you would go in, you have up. Somebody on the inside, a dealer and, and or a pit boss, and then guys on the floor. Were the teams big teams? Generally not. It was just me and my partner, generally. Although when we did the big plays, the coolers, yeah, it could be up to about 12, 15 people, which took a lot of practice, a lot of trust. And sometimes it didn't go off. Uh, you just, things didn't work. So you'd have to scrub the play, come back next day, next week, et cetera which is frustrating, but it was a thing to do. When you're just like you and I, I'm dealing, you're my agent, it's going to be almost 100% you're going to be able to come in and play against me. 
But on the big plays, yeah, sometimes it took a lot of patience. And just, uh, I think from my memory, we always got the, the play down, but you know, sometimes it would take a week or two. It just didn't work out. Control. What would a dozen people do, though? I mean, were you guys. Okay, let me give you some. How did you guys coordinate with 10 or 12 people? Well, we practice. I mean, we all had blackjack tables, so we'd go through dry runs, but you'd have the dealer in on it. You'd have a big player. You'd have what we call the shills that were at the game playing on the square, just taking up spots. And then after the move was done, they would leave. The big player would come in. And by then, all the dirty work was done. So now the attention, you know, you're playing three hands of 3,000. Of course, you know, all attention is going to be on the big player. But there was nothing to see. It was already done. And then you'd have turns. What would happen is in the old days, they'd do coolers where they'd literally switch like six decks. Well, there's no way to make that invisible. I don't care who you are. Well, some guys came up with a computer cooler. And this back in the 80s. Remember, computers weren't very prevalent where you could do a cooler without switching cards, which makes no sense. But actually, what we would do is record the cards as they were dealt into a computer, but not a little you know, cell phone thing because there's no such thing. So the recorder, as we called them, literally had a computer, the circuit board strapped on his back. We'd always do this in the winter, so he'd wear a jacket. And he would, usually I'd be at first base kind of controlling what was going on, and he would punch in with his hand. The keyboard was in his pocket, every card in order. And when it came time to shuffle, the computer was told, and it's pretty simple instructions, figure out a way to make sure the player won by varying the number of hands the player played and the number of hit cards. Well, if you can play one to three hands and vary the hit cards, just about every sequence of cards, no matter how few or how many, it would come up with a way to do that. So the, when the big player is at the game, the guy with the computer would be off in the crowd and he'd just signal the big player two signals. One would be number of hands, one, two, or three, and then number of total hit cards, like three. And these were face-up shoe games, so it was two hit cards he's supposed to take off. Well, they had a 20 on one hand, of course, he's not going to hit. As a 14 here, he hits, gets a ace, 15. Well, he figures that has to be the hand to hit. Hit gets a three, and the third hand, let's say, is a 17 or whatever. And I think, you know, this goes back 35 years, but I believe on all those we did, the big, big player only lost like three or four hands total. The computer, you know, nowadays it's really, really simple software, but back then it was pretty complex, but it worked. So that's how you had that many people doing, you know, involved in a play. And it was like a movie. Everybody knew what they're doing, although we were the only ones that knew what was going on. To everybody else in the casino, it just looked like a bunch of people playing very low limit and decide to get up, go have uh, dinner, and a BP would come in, big player, do this to the boss. I want to reserve the game so nobody else could be at the game. And then um, he would start looking at the uh, computer guy and get the signals. He'd play two hands. And then three hands, whatever the guy would signal. Of course, it'd be a big crowd around them very shortly. So the computer guy wouldn't, you know, mix in with the crowd. And they never knew. But this was pretty technical back in those days. I think in the mid-80s, most people didn't even have a computer, let alone yeah. be able to do something like it. It was genius. It really was. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> Man. Are you consulting now? Do you, I, saw, I noticed. Uh, I saw. You, you, 
Yeah, I mean, right now, nothing because, you know, most casinos aren't closed. But yeah, when I do consult, I mainly talk about the psychology of cheating and how to spot somebody because the moves are going to change. But the psychology is the main thing and what to look for, what looks like this person just something doesn't look right. And he's looking around all the time. Now, is he looking for his buddy, his girlfriend, or is he looking for his partners and stuff? Because just about every play I've seen, you know, surveillance tapes, you can just, to me, most of them just stick out like a sore thumb. You say, uh, I don't know exactly what's going on, but something's going on. This guy just isn't a girl, isn't acting normal. And pretty much takes somebody who's been on the inside to do this to really know that kind of thing and be able to spot it. Did you guys what, die? So oh, sorry, Gary. I worked shoplifters as an off-duty job for a while. You did watch out in the grocery stores, you know, small type stuff. But you could spot them as soon as they came in. You can spot them. There's something wrong here. Their head's on a swivel, then they quit, and then they sneak glances. Then they'll look up, and then they'll go somewhere, and then they'll come back to where they were. And they'll sneak another glance, and then they'll snag it. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. You got that right. Go ahead, Larry. You guys, thanks. Sorry sorry to cut you off, Gary. Did uh, Dustin, did you guys get involved? Dice, I'm I'm really fascinated by that eight-hour session you have with Crunch. I mean, I imagine there were a lot of things that were involved in that. Was there any sports betting, point-shaving activities, anything like that? Or was it mainly the 21 world, blackjack world? It was a blackjack world. It's funny. Every time we tried Dice, it was a disaster. I mean, not that we got caught or anything, but nah, just me and Dice don't work, you know? It's funny. One time, I'll tell you a funny story. Ah, I can't remember everything. Basically, we had the uh, stick man in on it. It was supposed to be a pretty busy game. So, you know, uh, some people wouldn't hear what I'd say. So I had a, about 1500 in cash. I was supposed to come up, throw it on the uh, table and mutter something. And the stick man would um, basically call the bet after the dice was uh, rolled so I couldn't lose. Tables have the railing. I come up, hit the rail with the money. It falls all over the damn floor. <laughs> so I just pick it up and walk out. <laughs> and we would have won on the square that time. <laughs> so every time we did it, and we didn't do many at all, but every time we tried to dice play, it just didn't work. So I got the clue real early on and stay away from the dice. Now, did you guys on the in blackjack or that, that aborted effort with dice, how did it work buying off somebody on the inside? Did they get a cut of what was won or was there an upfront payment? Like, hey, we'll give you a thousand bucks to be in with us. Or how did you get people on the inside involved? The people I worked with were all personal friends, magicians that I trusted. That's the main thing. You got to trust them. And I picked people that just didn't seem like they would do this kind of thing. One of my main partners was a guy you look at him kind of like a John Candy guy. You just like him immediately. And he was a dealer and nobody suspected this guy. So he could screw up a little and still get away with it. I remember one famous story and I was not involved, but my buddy was. They were playing. He was a dealer, the John Candy type guy. And my other buddy was the player. And the uh, dealer, John Candy type guy, would he just wasn't paying attention, you know. And he started looking under fives <laughs> instead of tens. <laughs> <laughs> and even the boss came over and started laughing, but he could get away with that kind of stuff because nobody would suspect him. So I thought that was stronger than having a really good mechanic who just, you know, didn't fit in and the bosses might be a little suspect of. 
was there a front end payment? Hey, look, you know, we're going to do this tonight. We'll pay you 500 bucks. Or did they get a percentage of what you guys want? Percent. I always split 50-50. And that was very fair because honestly, a lot of times I was doing most of the work or taking most of the risk, but I wanted to keep what I call agents happy. If they're happy, they ain't going to roll on me. And I always pick people that were, you know, they weren't into other things, you know, get popped for drugs, et cetera, and then play, let's make a deal. And we never had any problem like that. At least I didn't. And what the dealer could do basically is is show a card. I mean, what? how could the dealer cheat to help? The agent was the guy on the other side of the table, the, the player. The player. So what, what could the dealer do to help the player? Oh, just tons of stuff. The two things when I was a dealer that I mainly did was I would flash the first card before the player made a bet. So if the player saw, like, let's say you're my agent. If you saw a two through nine, you're going to make a small bet. If you saw a 10, that's about a 12% starting advantage. So you make a medium bet. If you saw an ace, that's a 52% starting advantage. So you make a big bet. But it got better as I tucked my whole card, I'd show you your first hit card. So you never bust with one card. You never double down unless you get a 20. On those stiff hands, like a 16, regardless of my up card, if you saw a four coming, you're going to hit it because you're going to have a 20, which is a damn good hand. That's about a 30% edge, but it went further than that. I could stack the deck. So it was a guaranteed winner. So, and I wouldn't stack every shuffle. It'd be too strong. But anytime I want you to win, I'd stack the deck, guaranteed you'd win. So you make a big bet and it looked pretty good because you now shuffle the cards, you cut, and then you make a big bet. So you couldn't be card counting because you hadn't seen any cards. It looked like you were just taking a shot. Of course, you'd win every time because you did that. But you know, times I didn't stack the deck, you'd make a bet, but not as big, and you might win or lose. And how I didn't did you want stack you to it? win every time. That would be suspicious. You know, it would be good if it kind of fluctuate. Of course, you won overall, but we. I honestly wanted you to lose some hands. So you didn't look like, ah, something's going on. Why is this guy winning every hand? How did you stack the deck? What was stacking the deck? It would be, okay, the final round, and this was handheld. Final round, the cards are face up, you know, after I turn them over and determine who wins and loses. I could look at the layout of the cards and know within one second what hand you're going to get when I shuffle. Because I'm not going to shuffle those cards that are on the layout. I'm going to go through the motions of shuffling, but that we call a slug of cards. Let's say it's 10 cards. They would not actually get shuffled, although they appeared to be shuffled and mixed. So I could look and know you're going to get a 20, but if there's only you and I, or you and one other player, I could look and know you're going to get a 20. I'm going to get an 18. I could read it that fast. So, I mean, that was a dead winner. And then if you were heads up with me, you'd play two hands. So I could, at the end, when I'm going to shuffle, I could determine what you're going to get on both those hands plus my hand. It was about as strong as you could get. And it was no, none of this looking around. I mean, I just looked for half a second. I just trained my mind. To, boom, boom, you're going to 19, 18, I'm going to have a 17. So it was, I think, the strongest thing you could do. Because when I shuffled, there's no way you could tell I was manipulating the cards. Those same four cards, uh, six cards, for example, they would not get shuffled. They may get in slightly different order, but they would not get shuffled into the deck. And so then when you dealt back off the top, they would come back out, but in a different sequence, maybe. Yeah, if this is the stack of cards, I wouldn't intermix them with these cards. Yeah, they'd be on the top. 
Basically, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it was, I did that, I don't know how thousands of times, literally over the years. And it always worked. And it was just a dead winner. Yeah. We would, like I said, we wouldn't do it all the time because it was just too strong. If you kept winning every time <laughs> the deck got shuffled, that would be a tell. Yeah. But, you know, when I can have you win anytime I want, that's about as strong as I can get. And usually what we do at the final bet, and now you'd be going south with your chips, so it wouldn't look like you had won as much as you did. And then you stand up, go, ah, damn, I'm going to take one shot, and, you know, $500. And, of course, you'd win, but it was all an act. You knew that. I have to ask you, you got there in 83 in Las Vegas. That was sort of the tail end. We talked about the Mob Museum at the beginning. That was sort of the tail end of, of that era. Spilatro and all those guys. Mm -hmm. Lefty, I think, was gone. Rosenthal was gone by the time you got there, or was almost gone. Did you know, but Herbie Blitzstein was around until 96 or so, 97, I think he was killed. Did any of those mob guys, underworld guys, Dustin, the, the mafia guys, were were you involved with any of those guys? Did they lean on you? Did they get a cut? How heavily involved were you all with whatever you want to call it, the mob, the mafia? What kind of role did they play in what you all were doing? Except for one guy who was actually with us, none. I mean, I don't know of any mob guy that was part of the plays. It's definitely not my real inner tight circle. Maybe on some of the uh, big plays, you know, when you had 15 people, is we all use aliases. So I didn't know their names. They didn't know my name. The one guy that I did do business with was actually in the movie Casino. Not the actor, but his character was in the movie Casino. Don't know if he's actually in the mob, but he definitely knew Rosenthal and probably knew Spilatro. I can't even remember because this goes back 35 years ago. But that's well, the only time. The would, would you say who it is? I'll say the character in the movie, Don Rickles, the okay. casino manager. Yeah. Yeah. And whoever this guy was, I know his name. He'd tell me stories. Yeah, they were interesting. But this guy was a stand-up guy. He treated me very well. In my perspective, a nice guy. I don't actually think he's in the mob, but he definitely knew those. Yeah. You guys were kind of low profile, and, and as long as you stayed low profile, and they didn't really know about you. They knew about you. They learned what you were doing and knew anybody involved with you knew about you. They'd be wanting a piece of the action in some manner. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we never had anybody cut into us. We were going to cut into somebody, but we decided not to because um, we heard this guy was just unreliable. I mean, he was a casino manager at a place, but the one guy said, you know, we just can't trust him because he could uh, take the money. He could rat us out. It just wasn't worth it. And in my opinion, it was a good move. But that was the only time that yeah. I know of. You know, sometimes I wasn't the main guy, so there could have been things going on I didn't know about. Yeah, but when yeah. I was deeply involved. That was the only time that I ever heard of something like that. And that you know, was my only experience. Interesting. Well, Dustin, this has been great. Larry, you got any more questions? Dustin, I really appreciate it. Fantastic. Fascinating. Thanks for spending the time. Yeah, I appreciate I, I it. Appreciate you know, it. I was, I was going to tell you, Larry, I was supposed to do a um, demonstration down at the Mob Museum. I can't even remember who my contact was been about two years ago. But if you want me to do something down there, I'd love to do it because I really, really like that place. Yeah, it's a great place. It's, uh, I know they've got, and, and one of the, you know, we talked about the movie Casino. I know next week 
there is a, I think it's sold out because of social distancing. There's oh, yeah. limited capacity, but Nicholas Pelleggi is going to be oh, on it virtually from New York. I know there's a, I'll be watching online, but there's an online presentation, I think on the 19th about the movie Casino at the Mob Museum. I think they have a casino exhibit up now and all that. So, oh, yeah, well, well, and with the way, you know, one of the things we write about at, at casino.org is the way, you know, gaming is proliferating. It's all over the country now. Oh, 25, yeah. 25 states have legal or soon will have legal sports betting. There are casinos mm-hmm. all over the place. And so, like Gary said a moment ago, that, you know, you have to figure it's especially with the way gaming is growing, it's got to still be going on. Oh, yeah, in some form. Yeah. I mean, when you have basically a cash business, yeah, there's going to be somebody trying to take it off. That's just human nature. <laughs> That's for sure. So, Dustin, uh, tell the folks a little bit more about where they can get a copy of your book. And I think you have a YouTube channel. Tell us about that again. Yeah, if you want a copy of the book, I have it on my website, which is www.dustinmarks.com. That's Marks, M A R K S. And my YouTube channel where I have videos, mainly of my TV appearances. Just go to YouTube and type in Dustin Marks and you'll get there. Uh, The book is actually, it's a newer book. I think we published it in 18, 2018. And it's a combination of the first two books, uh, Cheating Blackjack and Cheating Blackjack Squared. And ironically, it's just called Cheating Blackjack again, but it's all the good stuff. Left out the not so good stuff. So yeah, if anybody's interested in that, and basically it's a historical look at what was done back in the eighties and stuff. Lot, you know, for researchers or people just interested, and it's a real thing. I write in the way we would talk and stuff back then, so it kind of feels how we thought and what we said. You'll do a special appearance, or like if the Bob Museum were to call you up and you'd do a demonstration and do demonstrations. Of course, you. You probably have to, they got to pay you door to door and and first class airfare. (laughs) But, you know, it's fun because I'm doing what I used to do, but there's no downside. I can't get caught. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I really enjoy that kind of stuff. It's really fun. And, yeah, I know how to speak. I know how to tell stories. So, yeah, if anybody's interested, yeah, I'd love to do it. It'd be a good time. Do you still play? Do you go in and just sit down and have a nice, friendly game of blackjack? Is that a part of your past? Haven't made a bet since 1990. Wow. <laughs> Just because you don't want to, well, that's a part of the past? No, no interest anymore. I wasn't a gambler. I was there to get the money. You know, it was kind of like you said, a job. And two, you know, if I lose, people go, oh, I see, ain't that good. If I win, I must be cheating. So I can't win, so I'm not going to do it. With it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I go in the casino. If I lose 10 bucks, it's like, oh, get me. I'm losing all my money. Get me out of here. <laughs> I find no joy in doing it. A lot of people do. A lot of people, it's really, it's entertaining. I've got a guy I play golf with, and he goes, and he takes $100. And when the $100 is gone, which it always is, he goes home. (laughs) All right, Dustin, I really appreciate it. I'll let you know when this is going to be up. Okay, great. So you can tell your friends about it, and we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Okay. Great seeing you, Dustin. Enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Good night. Good night, Larry. Thanks, Gary. Good night. Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast Reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more Mob information that you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. 
Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie, if you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire. I use some illustrations in those, and by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or two ninety nine if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation. And then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about Gangland Wire. You guys all know. I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening, and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. Casey.